Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 340. My name is Camden Busey. I'm the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. I'm delighted to be back with you today. We have an awesome episode lined up for you. Let me introduce to you first a regular. We have Jared Oliphant, who is regional coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome back, Jared. It's good to speak with you once again. Thanks, Camden. Good to be on. Yeah, it's uh, great to have you, and we are ecstatic to have with us one of our guests we've had before. We're welcoming back to the program Nancy Guthrie. Nancy teaches the Bible at conferences around the world. She's also the author of numerous books, including Holding On to Hope, Hearing Jesus Speak Into Your Sorrow, and the five-book Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament Bible Study Series from Crossway. She's a member and teaches at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee. Welcome back, Nancy. It's great to speak with you again. Oh, it's so fun to be with you, Camden and Jared. Thanks. We love having you on the program, and we are really excited to open up this new book, the fifth in the series, Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. These are series of— You uh, had me for the first one. We did. you had me for the fifth one. Love it. Exactly. The Word of the Lord, Seeing Jesus in the Prophets. Uh, We're going to speak about uh, the prophets and understand how they point us to Christ and how God was using them to reveal himself to his people. Back then, and also continuing on today, he's still speaking to us through the prophets in a very wonderful and special way. Before we open up this new book, I uh, do need to mention a few things. First, that Christ the Center is listener-supported. We rely on the generous support of all of our listeners to help us to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. Please visit us online today at reformedforum.org slash donate to pledge your support. We are always encouraged by people that sign up, especially for monthly donations of 5 and $10 a month. It's a huge help, and we would love for you to join us in this work and supporting the church and providing good, solid, Reformed resources to people that would like to go deeper in their faith in between Lord's Days. So visit us online today at reformedforum.org slash donate. I should also say that we are so thankful for all the people that have supported us in our fundraising campaign to raise enough funds to have our Reformed Forum Theology Conference, the inaugural one, October 10th through 12th in Grays Lake, Illinois, just a little bit outside of Chicago. It is going to be a reality. We meet it. We met our goal of $7,500. We exceeded that goal by a few hundred bucks, and we that means that the conference is locked in. It's going to happen, and we're working on all the details to get Dr. Scott Oliphant and Dr. Lane Tipton out to Grays Lake in October to have this wonderful new conference, and we're limiting the attendance to roughly around 100, so there's still lots of spots left, and we're working on registration uh, means to uh, allow people who still have not registered and did not participate in the campaign. If you would like to register, we're working on ways to make that happen, although you won't get as good of a deal as the people who contributed and helped us up front, but you still will be able to come, and we'd love to have you. Lots of one-on-one time with the Reformed Forum regulars and with the speakers. It's going to be a conference like none other on that regard. Jared, are you excited about this event? Yeah, I can't wait. It's going to be like, no, I go to conferences constantly, and this is going to be very different in a lot of ways. So I'm looking forward to the interaction and the lectures, obviously, and um, we have some different things planned. So it'll it'll be great. Yeah, it's definitely um, not only are the lectures going to be good, and they're going to be excellent breakout sessions on the theme of the sons of God. So we're looking at a comprehensive, redemptive, historical view of that theme, sons, or we could certainly say people or sons and daughters, of course. Romans 8, uh, we're thinking of, but also Israel uh, being the Son of God, Adam being the Son of God, and Christ being the eschatological, climactic, and final 
Son of God. So we're going to develop all that, and uh, certainly we're going to be broadcasting the lectures online so you can watch, but the real value is going to be uh, participating in person because you'll be able to interact with the speakers, ask questions, and uh, we're not going to whisk them away into a private room. They're going to be on the floor with everybody else. So we're excited to have everybody come. So you can find out more information about this at our website, reformedforum.org. Now, Nancy, we are so excited to have you. Uh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, especially on these subjects. Uh, we're talking here about the latest book, The Word of the Lord, Seeing Jesus in the Prophets. But before we get into uh, the subject matter of our book, we'd like to just uh, catch up with you a little bit about your goings-on. Can you bring mm-hmm. us up to speed on your past year? Wow. How, how have things been going, for instance, with the respite retreats? Um, oh, what are some of the highlight me. events from speaking? What have you been up to? Yeah, well, thanks for asking. As you know, we hold these respite retreats, which are weekend retreats that David and I host in a little lodge outside Nashville, a 12-bedroom lodge. And so it's 11 couples who have faced the devastation of losing a child and us for the weekend. And we head into the weekend and, you know, honestly, some people walk in. In fact, this last one This guy walked in and he wouldn't even look at us. He wouldn't talk to us. And we're thinking, oh, my goodness, it's going to be a long weekend. And um, at the end, he said, I came here kicking and screaming, but this has been one of the best things that's ever happened to me. And I thought I'd really dealt with the loss of my daughter. And I realized that I hadn't. And um, so it's an exciting thing that we do. It's it's small but big. Does that make sense? You know, it's a small group, but it, it... uh, it's significant, and it's not significant because of us. It's significant because the Lord has seen fit to bless it with his Holy Spirit, because only he is Jehovah Rapha to bring healing. And these couples who are hurting so deeply come in a great need of the healing work of the Holy Spirit, that he would work through his word, through his truth, to bring healing to them. So uh, we've done, we do three or four of those a year. So we just did one um in June, which was great. But actually, we, this year we did our first international one. We did a respite retreat in the UK, oh, wow. which wow. was really special. We, mm. we, we went to the UK for about 12 days in, in May. And uh, the person who brought us, uh, Peter Sandlin and his wife, Susanna, lost a child this last year. And they put together a respite retreat uh, out in the country in Kent was just, you know, a miserable place to be, of course. And, yeah. uh, but then they also booked us to do some other speaking, uh, or to help cover the costs of, of our coming there. So we started in Manchester. We got to speak at Oak Hill Theological College in London and, uh, we did the respite retreat. We did a day long conference training church leaders how to help people who are grieving. Uh, and we did that at the Sandlands Church in, uh, Tunbridge Wells. So, that that was thrilling, and um, I've spoken at a lot of churches this spring, which is just a joy to me. Somebody asked me recently, do you like the speaking? And, you know, sometimes the travel part of it yeah. is not so fun, uh, of course. Um, but, you know, just to, to be in churches with people, I thought it was funny what you said there that the speakers weren't going to go hide out in your conference, you know. <laughs> Sometimes they need to. <laughs> uh, well, it's always interesting to me because most places I go, the people who are hosting me, they expect I will want to do that, which, you know, tells me that perhaps most speakers do. And I just have is, no interest yeah. in that. Yeah. Um, I feel like, you know, I am there to minister to people, mm-hmm. you know, not just to speak up front. And so um, 
yeah, it, there's a cost to it um, to listen and to hug and to try to answer questions from people. But to me, I just feel like that's the ministry God has entrusted to me. And I really want to be a good steward of it. Yeah. And ultimately, I, I want to please him in the way I use those opportunities to mm-hmm. interact with people. So I'm thrilled I get to do that a lot. I I just got back from the Gospel Coalition Women's Conference held in Orlando, um, which was, you know, I mean, honestly, I, I would just pinch myself to just be there, um, mm-hmm. to be there with so many uh, incredible teachers of God's Word. And by that, I don't mean just the people up front or the people leading workshops. I mean, I'm talking about the people at the conference. I mean, they are just so to be in the company of so many women who love God's word and have invested so much in um, training and equipping themselves and doing the work of giving out God's word. That is a great privilege. But then on top of that, to get to be one of the people who then stands up in front and gets to open up God's word. That's just that's an, just an over the top privilege. And uh, the conference this time was on the book of Nehemiah. So all of the speakers were given uh, a couple of chapters out of the book of Nehemiah. Wonderful. And I got assigned the plum text. Let me just tell you, um, <laughs> I got Nehemiah seven and eight, you know, you which includes that incredible scene in Nehemiah eight, where the people of God uh, come to the water gate and they ask Nehemiah to bring out the book and to read from the book of the law, uh, the the book of Moses. And they they hear it and they don't just stand there bored or looking at their watches to think about what everything where they're gonna eat lunch, you know. Um they they receive it and their very posture shows that they're taking it in and of course as they hear about the failure of God's people over all the years to be all that God intended them to be they weep. Uh, but Ezra and Nehemiah tell them, you know, this is not a time for weeping. Um, eat the fat and drink sweet wine for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Uh, because when we go to God's book, we, we not only face up with our failure, our sin and failure to be all that God has intended for us to be, we also see our Savior. <laughs> Uh, our Savior who has come and is coming again to save us from that sin and has done everything necessary to provide us uh, the cleansing that we need from that sin and the power to say no to that sin. And so when we look in his word, there is the bad news about our sin, but there's also the good news of our Savior, which is exactly what those people heard that day gathered at the water gate that we read about in Nehemiah 8. So as you can tell, I enjoyed getting to talk about it Absolutely. and to yeah. take people to that scene and for us to discover what it means, not only that the joy of the Lord was their strength in their day, but what is the joy of the Lord and what does it mean that this joy would actually be our strength? So that was a great privilege. Yeah, sounds like it. From what I saw, there were about 4,000 attendees, so it was yes. definitely well attended. And it, it also seemed to have just kind of a, a different, um, maybe even better energy than than the last one. Um, it, I just saw a lot more on it. So I don't know if that was, I don't know what that's due to, but I, I was happy to see it. Yeah. Well, it was, it, it, it's fun to be at a conference that people, it's not like they thought they ought to come. I mean, they're just like over the top happy to be there. And yeah, I yeah. think that's because of the uniqueness of this. I mean, the uniqueness of a women's conference that 
is so serious about the text of the Bible and, you know, hearing it and understanding it. And so to be in a ballroom with 4,000 women who are listening to hour-long messages, you know, that aren't very entertainment-oriented, you know, and some speakers are good at using stories, others aren't. Some are good at using humor, some aren't. Some are good at the just the very the speaking skill of communicating from a big platform. Others aren't. But you know what? It just doesn't matter because all of them are equipped for illuminating God's word. And that's what the women are there for. And so they're there to take it in. And so it, it's pretty exciting to be in that setting and to be with that many people who just want to hear and understand what God has to say in his word, his written word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in, in speaking of uh, speaking opportunities, um, I don't want to dwell on this too much at length because I do want to get into the book. But I, I noticed that you're speaking in Australia coming up, which sounds How like cool incredible. I mean, that's just I, I, w- I would kill to go to Australia. Not literally, but um, <laughs> and uh, that you're speaking at the Desiring God conference coming up. So I'll see you there. That, that'll be a lot of oh, fun. Good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, but kind of switching gears a little bit, I, I noticed that you're speaking in new to mass as well. And, and I got this from the website, by the way, nancyguthrie.com. Um, what, what is that going to involve? I imagine that'll be a, a different kind of speaking engagement than some of the others. Well, what that is actually is I'm speaking at one of the gospel coalition regional conferences, okay. the, um, the new England, you know, chapter of the gospel coalition. Yeah. And so, you know, that's put together by Stephen Um and others, and that'll be in downtown Boston. And so a church in Newton, which you probably know more than I do, it's a suburb of Boston, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and, yeah, outside, right. Yeah, and it's a it's a group that's been doing some of my Seeing Jesus studies, and they saw I was going to be there, and they just said, you know, will you come out and do something for our women? And so what I'm actually going to do, I said, well, will your women invite unbelievers to come to something? And so they said, yeah. And so... I'm going to do something that morning where I'll tell my story, but really an evangelistic gospel call to take hold of hope in the person of Jesus Christ that I'm going to do there at their church. And hopefully, and they're intending to open it up to, you know, women from wherever and all all kinds of churches. And so, um, you know, even since then, you know, I've gotten some invitations from other churches in that area. So I just say, well, come there on that that Friday morning. So that's what that's about. Okay, good. Good to know. Um, well, I, I do want to get into the book, obviously, and this, this book is in uh, a series, Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Can you just orient us a little bit and tell us, okay, sure. what book um, is this in the series? Where right. have we gone and, and are we going anywhere? Is this the final one? How is this all wrapping up? Right. So, first of all, I should probably say that, you know, I mean, this series of books, just so everybody understands, was really uh, my attempt at furthering my own re-education on how to read and understand the Old Testament, you know, as someone who grew up in church and learned all the Bible stories. Um, I, there was the Old Testament in many ways is certainly the storyline of the Old Testament had remained fuzzy to me. But once I started hearing redemptive historical preaching and a sense of biblical theology, you know, I just realized I have to go back to ground zero. I, I have to go back to kindergarten uh, on my understanding of how to read the Bible. And so um, 
And, and I, I know there, there are plenty of other people who have needed that, and that's become clear as this series has come out. What's been so fun to me is when I go to places like the Gospel Coalition Moon's Conference to have women come up to me who have been doing this Seeing Jesus series, and they say to me, you know, thank you. I, I've studied the Bible whole my, my whole life, but I just have never seen it and understood it this way. And I'm so grateful. Actually, sometimes they actually weep because they're sad that they've spent their whole life reading and studying the Bible and not seen it with a sense of biblical theology to see the big story of the Bible. And there's a sense almost of regret and sadness that so much of their life has gone by and they haven't understood the Bible this way. So it's that need and desire I've sought to meet in the Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament series, the need I have had and therefore I've known other people have had. So what I did, it's a five-book series. So the first book was called The Promised One, Seeing Jesus in Genesis. And that's the only one that's on just one book of the Bible because it is so foundational to understanding um, the story of the Bible. So that was uh, The Promised One, Seeing Jesus in Genesis. And then was The Lamb of God, Seeing Jesus in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which I'm teaching this summer at my church on Tuesday night. So Wonderful. I did that last night. I did the study on, teach, on, on the law coming down at Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. And the difference there is that we don't go to Mount Sinai to receive the law. We come to Mount Zion, which the writer of Hebrews presents the difference, which was so fun to talk about with about 200 women last night. So the second book was The Lamb of God, Seeing Jesus in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The third book, uh, The Son of David, Seeing Jesus in the Historical Books. So that book begins with, you know, one week on Joshua, one week on Judges, one week on Ruth, and it works its way through the book of Esther. Uh, the fourth book is The Wisdom of God, Seeing Jesus in the Wisdom Books. So a study of Job, uh, five weeks in the Psalms, week on Proverbs, week on Ecclesiastes, week on Song of Solomon. And then finally is this uh, fifth and final book in the series, which has just come out, called The Word of the Lord, Seeing Jesus in the Prophets. So um, it's a 10-week study, and as you know, there are more than 10 prophetic books. So <laughs> one week one week is just an introduction and orientation to the prophets, and we can talk a little bit more about that. But, you know, I think that's what most of us need. We, we need an orientation to the prophets because I think most – well, that's not fair to say most, but, well, maybe it is fair to say. I, th- I think the, the prophetic books are the books that we are – least familiar with for most mm-hmm. people. Even those of us who have said that the Bible is the most important book to us our whole lives, um, the prophetic books are confusing and intimidating, and um, they don't fit into um, some of our theological systems. <laughs> and so um, there's one one week just to kind of orient, orient us and tell us why the prophets are worth, what makes them challenging to study and what makes them worth studying. And then I chose nine of the prophetic books. Um, Really, and and I didn't really go in book order because once again, I think one of the things that makes the prophets challenging to study is we are such chronological thinkers. And and we don't understand the story. And so I felt like it's helpful to present the prophetic books in the historical order in which what's being addressed in them takes place. 
So, you know, as you know, the prophetic books begin with Isaiah, not because it's the first that was written, because it's the biggest, it's the longest. And so instead, I began with what, you know, was likely one of the, the, the earliest, which would have been the book of Jonah. And so I, I, I selected nine of the major and minor prophetic mm. books um, to, to work through in those, in those chapters. That's really helpful. You know, one thing you, you address right early on is this uh, foundational, uh, some friends of ours would say architectonic uh, texts such as Hebrews 1.1. Well, you'll have 1, to explain 1. to me what that means after <laughs> we're done, okay? <laughs> Absolutely. About the, the most basic foundation you could possibly get, uh, Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 really describes what's going on with yes. the prophets. But what you're doing, especially in the introduction to the prophets, is so helpful because in a sense, you're helping people learn how to fish rather than just feeding them, you know, well, this prophet is about this, about this, about this. You are offering data and, and, and information, but you're also more or less teaching people how to read the prophets in general. So even though Nahum, for instance, is is not included here explicitly with an explicit chapter, but when you come to the book of Nahum after working through this 10-week study, you'll know how to approach it. And that's helpful because there are so many uh, different hermeneutical approaches to the prophets. There are so many different, um, well, disputes regarding biblical prophecy in evangelicalism today. And so Nancy is, is you know, I'm speaking now directly to the listener. Nancy will help you, um, you know, navigate these sections even beyond what's contained in the in the pages of this book. Nancy, why does Hebrews 1.1 such an important place to start to kind of be our compass or our bearing so that we make sure that we navigate uh, these prophets correctly and don't get sidetracked? Yeah. Uh, long ago, in various ways, God has spoken through the prophets. And then there's one of those huge buts in the Bible, right? Uh, but now <laughs> he has spoken through his son. And so there's a sense in which we understand that um, we understand Jesus as the prophet of all prophets in that sense, the prophet that all of these prophets were shadowing in their person and work, that Jesus is not just a messenger of God like they were. He's the message. Um, he's the, he's the an, in a sense, the final word. He is the exhaustive word. He's now everything we need to know. Um, he's everything that God would want to say to us. And he's also, he's the, uh, he's the focus toward, he's the answer uh, of, of all that the prophets were writing about, all that they anticipated, he fulfills. And so, yeah, Hebrews 1 helps us. Uh, you know, another key passage would be Second um, Peter 1, you know, 10 through 12, that sense in which the that the prophets, they, they longed to know um, what, the who, what, where of what the Spirit of Christ in them, which I find to be a fascinating phrase there, right? What the Spirit of Christ in them was um, pointing toward in what they wrote about. So, I mean, I, I think it's helpful for people to understand that, yes, these uh, prophets, they that they had uh, that there's a sense in which we can understand what they were writing about it even better than they understood it. I mean, yeah. they had some understanding of it, but certainly they, they didn't know when Christ would come. Mm -hmm. They didn't, there was so much they didn't know, of course, about the person of Jesus. Um, but now we can go back and we, the, 
We also know, though, I mean, I just think that's fascinating. It was the spirit of Christ that was revealing these things to them, you know, that Christ didn't only appear on the scene when he was born as a baby, yet his, it was actually his spirit that was illumining and speaking. When we read, the word of the Lord came, which, you know, is a repeated phrase, which is why I wanted to title the book this way. Mm. We read repeatedly, the word of the Lord came to them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the spirit of Christ. He's he's speaking to them, uh, illumining them. But I also think that that's, that's what makes that Hebrews 1 passage so important, but it also, we can't help but think of John 1, mm-hmm. uh, that the Word who was with God and yet who was God became flesh and dwelt among us. And so here's this sense of the Word of the Lord coming to the prophets. But then we come to the New Testament and we see that the Word of the Lord who came to them, the Word has, the Word of the Lord has now come to us in flesh and blood and is, and is speaking and that we hear his voice and we get to read a record of his voice. Um, it's a beautiful thing. Mm. So the person of the eternal Son of God is both the goal and the subject matter of all of Scripture, but yes. especially the prophets. I yes. Love it. I love yes. It. Yeah, another observation that you make um, that I just could not agree more with is you mentioned that uh, our unfamiliarity with the Old Testament history and geography Mm -hmm. often causes us to hesitate to even study these books. They just sound foreign to us. We're not sure, you know, what our entry point is. Um, so I thought one of the one of the great features of this book in particular was just the basic maps that you include, and so you can see what's going on with, you know, the exile and, and even where Jonah's going in relation to where he's supposed to go. Those kind of things are just really helpful. Um, was that, and, and I don't remember, um, you know, something like that uh, in the, the previous books. Was that because no. it was so important for the story of this or, or what was the background of that? Yeah, yeah, it probably would have been good to include, you know, some maps, especially in the Son of David book, because just understanding the geography of, you know, these tribes, where they are and where their enemies are and, you know, how they're surrounded by these other nations, um, it really does help. And um, I don't know, though, there's something about, you know, putting a map. I mean, people are (laughs) so easily intimidated, you know, and if it starts, (laughs) if it starts feeling like school, instead of just this inspirational Bible study, I mean, people can pretty quickly go, oh, that's going to be too hard, or, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to be too technical. And and yet, we just cannot understand the prophets rightly unless we understand some of those uh, historical and uh, geographical references. Um, and what happens if we don't understand them and if we ignore them then we move too quickly about to making it about us in the here and now, you know, skipping that step of understanding what, who this was originally written to and what the situation was and, and what was being addressed. And, and therefore, I think we end up in the ditch. We end up having gone a really wrong direction about what is being spoken about in these prophetic books. If we don't really, uh, make the, uh, uh, intellectual 
and educational effort, I guess. And, and certainly, I mean, I'm talking like I am some great expert in the geography and history of this. And I'm, I'm really not. I mean, I'd be embarrassed for you to know how little I know. But I have figured out that even just, you know, whatever you invest in that, by spending some time in the maps or by trying to, even just to step away from the Bible, just to go to a friend and say, let's try to just say out loud the the timeline of the history, you know, the the process of yeah. the kings of, okay, so there was... David and then Solomon and then they divided up into two kingdoms and there was a northern kingdom and that was Israel and they they didn't have all Davidic kings but then in the south they had Davidic kings but they were evil and then there was this exile you know to uh, Assyria but then later this exile to Babylon of the southern kingdom and really just people the southern people southern kingdom I mean I could not have said that to you as much as I had talked about the Bible, written books about the Bible, and taught, I mean, I I just couldn't have given you that basic, very basic understanding of the history. And, you know, without it, there's there's just, there's a lot about the Bible you can, can't understand, and certainly the prophetic books you can't understand. And, and I think for most people, where it gets fuzzy is the kings, kingdoms, exiles, returns. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the part that I knew stories from it, but I didn't understand the story. And so just, you know, a little bit of effort uh, made into understanding those things. What a huge payoff than when we study either the historical books, but even more these prophetic books, too, because they have so many historical and geographical references that yeah. can just, we can just pass over and just not get what's happening if we don't have at least a very basic grasp of them. Even many of the books, you know, will interface with one another. Some of the prophets, you can find um, repeating other prophets. You find similarities yes. between Isaiah 2 and Micah 4, for instance, but also a prophet like Nahum is even that much more um the crimes of Nineveh are even that much more heinous when we understand the background of the book of Jonah, the fact that God had offered repentance to Nineveh and they repented, but maybe about 120 years later, they're wicked and going to be destroyed via God's yes. judgment. So help, knowing the history and the order, you know, and if you, if you thought Nahum came before Jonah, you'd be utterly confused or maybe mm-hmm. not. You certainly wouldn't understand the full significance of the book of Nahum, for instance. That's just one small example of why the history and the timeline is so helpful. Uh, you also provide the example of the cows in Amos, you know, things like that. If you don't know the nature of the people and the types of <laughs> You don't know what the cows of Bashan right. are. You don't right. know you should laugh when you read it. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I would just say, you know, to your audience for this podcast, just for especially, uh, you know, pastors and uh, church leaders, what would it not be a great idea to have a short class, even if it's just, you know, a night or two or a Saturday where you just spend helping people grasp that basic historical and geographical timeline. I mean, it seems like it would pay off dividends Mm -hmm. in their studies of the scriptures. And if you could make it fun and, you know, help people to just really own it. And I think a part of that is that they don't just sit and listen, but then they have to give it back out. I mean, uh-huh. Honestly, I mean, I'll just be honest with you. That's why I write these books. <laughs> um, yeah. A lot of it is that, you know, it's when I have to read and understand something, not just to kind of get it or to take a test on it or something, but because I've got to give it out back out to other people, 
there's just a level of understanding it and owning it that is is much deeper and more significant. And so, you know, to create a scenario where your people could then, even if it's just one-on-one with other people, um, they're then giving some of that back out so that they really own it. Seems like that'd be really a good benefit. Oh, I, I totally agree. I was able actually to study in um, Jerusalem in, in Israel back in 2001. And uh, when I came back, I, I went to seminary a couple of years later. And that's exactly what I attempted to do. I don't, I don't think I was successful at it. This was about 10 years ago. But I did a Sunday school class that tried to bring back a lot of those observations that I had over in Israel where I'm literally standing you know, mm-hmm. at, at Azekah and looking at what was going on when, when David was fighting Goliath and where the Israelites probably were and where the Philistines were. And, um, and, and also just, you know, if you start with the premise of uh, God through the human authors is trying to communicate something through these proper names. And if we can, mm-hmm. if we can know the, the meaning and the location, it'll, it'll just illuminate our broader understanding of the context and, and whatever else is going on. There, even from you know battle strategy of when they name a bunch of cities that are in line by the coast. Okay, you know they're trying to, you know, um, block and, and do defense in a certain way from the Philistines, etc. Those, those kinds of little details just fill out your imagination in reading scripture. So all that yeah. is to say that I could not agree more with with what you just said. Yeah. Let's let's get into definitions a little bit. When when we're talking about the prophets, um, can you help us understand what you mean by that, especially in light of um, maybe some confusion in, in present day, uh, you know, am I, a, can I be a prophet? What's, <laughs> what's going on with the biblical prophecy and the new Testament prophecy? And, and how, how are we to understand this when we're mentioning the term? Yeah. Well, these old Testament prophets, uh, they were people, you, nobody volunteered to be a prophet. Like, like we yeah. do today, you know, <laughs> like we could say, Oh, I think, I think I've got those <laughs> gifts. I think I'll apply for that job. I mean, and, <laughs> You know, and when we really, when we look at these prophets, I don't think anybody would have wanted to apply. No. For this job, right? Moses or Jeremiah certainly didn't want to, yeah. Yeah, just right on down the line. (laughs) Right. So, yeah. So, Moses was the first prophet. And and I think that's where we discover the the most essential meaning of being a prophet, um, that Moses was, uh, Moses spoke for God to the people. And, you know, and then Moses also spoke... um, what did I say? He spoke for God to the people and he spoke for the people to God. You know, he, he had that, that mediatorial sense as well. But all these prophets, you know, the word of God came to them and they spoke to the people. But I think, you know, one aha discovery for me, I mean, I've always thought of it mostly as speaking to the people. But, you know, it's the, the, in the, that prophet, priest and king triad, you know, the prophets were also their, their main role was speaking to the king. Um, you know, we we have a mindset of what a king is like from our worldly experience, and the king is pretty much all powerful and independent, and everybody bows to him. But you know, it, in the scriptures, I mean, the prophet was intended to speak to the king for God, because the king was supposed to be a king who um, ruled, in a sense, under authority of God's word and obeyed God's word and led the people in worshiping God and obeying God and being a lover of God's word. And of course, that was part of the failure of the kings, yeah. that they didn't, and which is why so many kings actually sought after to kill the prophets. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't want to hear from God. And so that prophetic role, 
God spoke to them, and he and and just like Hebrews says, he spoke to them in various ways. I mean, and through them in various ways. For some of them, it seemed to be a vision. Like we think about, if you look through the book of Isaiah, it's so often. Here's what I saw. I saw. And interestingly, he keeps using the word over and over again in Isaiah, behold, behold. He wants us to see what he saw. Um, the, but how different was the experience of Hosea? Um, yes, there is a section of Hosea where the Lord speaks to him and he gives out God's words, but, but he's, he's living out a message mm-hmm. in a really costly way, we would have to say. That at the very beginning of Hosea, we see that God calls him and tells him to take a wife of harlotry. And so his, his life, his marriage is going to be a way he's declaring something uh, to the people of God. And, and of course, he is declaring to them uh, what God, the way God sees his marriage to an unfaithful people who are adulterous. They're, they're chasing after other lovers, other gods. And so Hosea is not, it's not just that God is giving him this message in words and that then he's going to go out and declare it. He's got to, he's got to live out, um, that message, uh, to people. Um, the prophet Ezekiel, once again, it's, it's these visions. God gives him these series of visions that he, he sees and then he, communicates. So for these Old Testament prophets, the word of the Lord came to them um, and they wrote and they gave out God's word. And oftentimes it was through a a vision um, and then other times through direct communication, evidently from that spirit of Christ who, who spoke to them the word of the Lord that they were to give to the king and to the people. There's a quote that you have in here um, and I'll just read it. You say, we can never think that the exiles returning to the land, putting a monarch on a throne, or rebuilding the temple was the fulfillment of all God promised through his prophets. Um, and I guess someone, you know, a skeptic might, might say, isn't that what the prophets were prophesying about? How is that not the message? So, um, how do you, uh, can you explain a little bit and elaborate on, on that quote there from you? Yeah. Well, I think one key thing to understanding the prophets is the breadth of fulfillment, to those things. I mean, there are, there are some asp, there are a number of things that we would see in the prophets that were fulfilled in physical, tangible ways in history, uh, in their day. Um, but then yeah. you, but those seem to be partial fulfillments because they also seem to be fulfilled in far greater ways, um, when the word of the Lord came in flesh, we see, you know, that there are things that are spoken of that are fulfilled in much greater ways in the person of Christ and in his work and what was accomplished by him. Um, and yet there still seems to be even greater and fuller ways that are yet to be fulfilled. So I'm trying to think of an example from, from one of these, um, let, let's maybe pick the book of Daniel. Um, which, I mean, let's face it, I always thought it was all about the lions, you know, <laughs> and yeah, about exactly. the, you know, and... Um, Be brave. Yeah, now I realize it's all about the kingdoms of the world and the kingdoms of God. And here are Daniel 
and his companions, and they are carted off from Jerusalem to live in the kingdom of the world at that time, Babylon. And the real question is, how are you, how are they going to live as citizens of the kingdom of God in the kingdom of the world? Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, um, these, uh, dreams that, d- that are given to these kings and to Daniel, they're all about kingdoms. And there's this, this dream that he, that, um, the king has that Daniel is able to interpret it. And what this dream shows is that there is going to be a rock, not hewn by human hands, that is going to crush all of the kingdoms of the world. And, Daniel is is able to interpret it, but once again, you know, he has a limited ability to see what that rock, or we should say who that rock is going to be that's going to crush every kingdom of the world. And uh, we see that when Jesus comes, he claims to be that rejected stone, that cornerstone. Mm-hmm. He, in his person and in work, he he is going to crush all the kingdoms of the world. And that is fulfilled in a partial way, a beautiful way, in um, what he accomplishes in his life and death and resurrection and ascension. He is now seated at the right hand of God. And yet, isn't there a further, greater fulfillment yet to come in his second coming? When he comes and the Babylons of this world, as we read about, especially at the end of Revelation, when Babylon the Great is destroyed forever. And when we read that great verse in Revelation, where it's declared from the throne that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of his Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so, there is yet to come this greater fulfillment of what was prophesied. And another example would be uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel uh, has this vision of a restored temple, a restored city. Um, and, you know, honestly, your friend Greg Bill was so helpful to me in this, his book, you know, especially on the temple that this, he, he, Ezekiel in his vision, he seems to see this garden like, um, city in the shape of a temple. I just love that because those are those three mm-hmm. big images, right? Of, of restoration. Um, but the thing is, when the people come back from exile, that Ezekiel is talking about, the people are going to come back and this is going to happen. I mean, let's face it, the, the city of Jerusalem, the city, it doesn't, it doesn't quite live up to what Ezekiel has described in terms of a city, of its restoration. The temple, certainly, the rebuilt temple, um, it certainly doesn't live up to the temple that, uh, Ezekiel describes. The people themselves, I mean, they're not restored to any it's it, it's 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 not a great city again like we might expect and so yes there's a partial fulfillment uh when the people return from exile and as we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah the wall is rebuilt and the temple is rebuilt and the city in a sense God's people are restored but it just doesn't live up to all of the glory that Ezekiel has described uh mm-hmm. but then comes the day 
that Jesus comes. And he reveals to us that he, in fact, is the temple. And that when he is destroyed in three days, that temple will be rebuilt. And, and then as we read throughout the rest of the Testament, New Testament, that he is building his church even now with living stones. Right. Right? Yeah. And so we recognize that, you know, Jesus is the temple, that even now the church is the temple that's being rebuilt in this glorious way, that now the city is not just this um, piece of real estate in the Middle East. Now the city is built up with the people of God that is people from every t- tribe, tongue, and nation who um, put their faith in Christ and become a part of that. And he, he has begun rebuilding his garden in every place on the earth where the gospel is declared and taken hold of and loved. And so even more of a fulfillment of what Ezekiel has talked about. And yet it still isn't all it's going to be because the day is going to come when, as as we read about, especially in Revelation 21 and 22, this garden where there are leaves for the healing, uh, 12 leaves, um, the fruit of all of these seasons. So that the garden is going to be restored. It's going to be a city that's going to come out of heaven from God. And then, of course, this beautiful thing there that there is no temple there because the whole place is a temple and the lamb is its light. And so certainly when we get to Revelation 21 and 22, we realize that is the fullest um, fulfillment of mm-hmm. all that Ezekiel was talking about. Yeah. Well, and since you're on Ezekiel, we have to quickly hear the best birthday ever story. That is an <laughs> illustration that that was hilarious. I mean, speaking of a heavenly experience, that sounds like a <laughs> right up there. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So I guess then I have to reveal my age, which honestly I'm not embarrassed about. So it was a couple, few years ago. It was my fiftieth birthday. A couple of years ago, and uh, you know, and I. So I'd been planning way ahead. You know, what do I want to do to celebrate my fiftieth birthday? Because people always have really great things to do, and I had all kinds of ideas. But I decided at the last minute what I wanted to do was do a very Nashville thing. In Nashville, here they have things called uh, songwriter nights, um, and. What they are, because there are so many songwriters here in Nashville, right? And so they do a thing called, you know, in the round. And what that means is you have like two or three songwriters in the round. And (laughs) it's not necessarily the people who sang the songs and recorded them and made them famous. It's people who wrote the songs. And so, and these guys, you know, kind of sit in a circle and they sing the songs they wrote. And to me, it's far more fun than actually the big artist performing on a big stage. And so... Uh, because we have a lot of friends who are, you know, songwriters and musicians and because we love music. So we invited just a small group of friends who are all musicians in big and small ways. And we had my own personal songwriters night. So I had like my friend Marty Getz, who um, he's a um, uh, Messianic Jew. He's a Jewish believer. And so he sang some incredible songs he's written. He also sang he, – he took the song uh, – uh, Frank Sinatra song called uh, Nancy with the smiling face or laughing face or something like that, which I couldn't believe I'd gotten to be 50 years old and not known there was a song called, <laughs> that had Nancy in the title. Nancy, Yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. But he took that and he rewrote the lyrics and made them about me, which was really mm-hmm. funny. And um, David, our, our mutual friend, David Filson was there and I'm trying to remember what Tom he Douglas, sang. right? I, I yes, then Tom, wanted to meet him for so long. 
right? Tom, our friend Tom Douglas was there, and he sang uh, one of his you know award-winning popular songs, which is called "The House That Built Me." And, you know, it was recorded by Miranda Lambert and was mm-hmm. Song of the Year and all of that, which is this story of this girl who goes back to the home that she grew up in. And she asks if she can come around, come in and look inside because she has this sense that her life has gotten gone off track. And she says, you know, I, I just thought if I could just be in this place that maybe the person I was and who I was brought up to be. And she says that if I could just be in that house that built me, maybe the broken place in me would start healing. And so I just use that to see, to, to get into Ezekiel, this sense mm-hmm. of God's house and that we all have a longing to, for home, for this place that helps us understand and define who we're meant to be in this place that we can find healing. And that really for all of us, the ultimate house is the house of the Lord, the temple of God, um, this place where the person we love most dwells. And when we come to the end of the book of Ezekiel, there we see that this house has been rebuilt and it's this house that's a garden-like city. <laughs> uh, and the very end of Ezekiel, we're welcomed back into this city, this house, and it's called The Lord is There. And that just makes me want to weep, actually, (laughs) Mm -hmm. when I think about that, that that is the home that built us. It's 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 the foundation of where we came from. It's our home. It's where we can find our home now in the person of Christ is he is that home now. But what a great thing it is for us to anticipate that one day we're going to be invited. We're going to we're going to leave this place where we are alien and strangers, where we are wandering in the wilderness of this world. And in such a profound way, we're going to be home. And, 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 and our home will be that city, the new Jerusalem, where nothing will ever be able to harm us again. Nothing will be able to be a hurt us again, where he will wipe away all of our tears and we'll live in perfect he will provide us absolute protection. We'll live in perfect unity with each other. There'll be nothing to hide. But the best thing about living in that home, in that city, will be that the Lord is there. The person we love the most will be right there living with us. And we will enjoy communion with him. We'll hear his voice like never before. We'll see and understand his word like never before. We'll be able to serve him with a pure heart like never before. I mean, just getting back to what we're talking about today, which is why should we study the prophets? You know, the prophets give us an understanding of what that day. But more than that, I think they implant in us a longing for that day. That once we get to the New Testament, it's there. But, you know, it's just not there in the beautiful, poetic pictures that we find in the prophetic books. And so, you know, if if you're a person who finds yourself so caught up in living life in this world and so caught up in the disappointments of this world, 
so caught up in mm. even the good things about this world that you 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 realize you know what sometimes my heart just isn't set on longing for the world to come mm-hmm. longing for being with Christ longing for his return why might that be it's because we've settled for visions maybe it's because our eyes our hearts our minds are so absorbed in the things of this world well i would say to you go to the prophets Go to the prophets because the prophets, not only do they show us the ugliness of this world, the ugliness of ourselves that are caught up in sin, not only do they warn us of the judgment that's going to come on this world and the judgments for the enemies of God in this world so that we develop an appropriate fear of the judgment of God. But more than that, the, the prophets declare hope, a hope yeah. that is there for us to take hold of. And frankly, it's not just a hope of um, getting things right in this world. It's not just a hope of figuring out how to operate in this world, although that's part of it. It's a hope beyond this life, this world. It's the ultimate hope that God is pointing toward us. And it's not just the hope for the people of God that came in Christ's first coming, which we must land on and camp on because that is the reality we're living in now. And we have the hope, for example, the hope that Jeremiah presented. There was the hope that was given to them that was going to come in the person of work of Christ and even more in the coming of the Spirit, which was, he said, the day is coming, declares the Lord, that the... um that the word was not just going to be written on tablets of stone, which was the old covenant of the law, but he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and it's going to be written on your hearts. And so that's fulfilled then when Christ comes and he offers the blood of the new covenant, and then on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out. And so that this new covenant is written on our hearts, it gives us the want to. And yet Jeremiah points to so much more than that. Jeremiah keeps using these words about being replanted in the land and being restored. And we know that we get that restoration, that replanting now as we take hold of Christ and as the Spirit of God goes to work in us, beginning that work of renewal in our lives. And yet that work of renewal, it's ongoing. That replanting, restoration, it's ongoing and it will not be complete until that day mm-hmm. of resurrection and we experience the complete renewal that uh, that is what Jeremiah and Isaiah are talking about and so you know i just think people have a perception about the prophets about we 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 started by talking about understanding the geography and history and maybe one reason they don't we don't study it is we think it's pretty much all about that and those people then But here's the beauty. When we understand what it was saying to those people then, and we understand the sin they were dealing with, the judgment that was to come, and the hope that was being presented to them, we realize that we struggle with the same sins, Mm -hmm. and we're subject to the same judgment, and we have the same hope. Our hope is in the person of Christ who came, but more significantly for us, the person of Christ who is coming again. And the hope that is described that the prophets present over and over again, it was experienced in part in Christ's first coming. But it's what gives us a longing 
it's what nurtures in us a longing for the restoration, the hope that is yet to come when Christ comes again. Absolutely. That's so helpful. And we certainly live in between the times. And the prophets uh, help us to understand what that means. And they do look forward to the, the coming of Christ, to his incarnation, and to the Messiah and what he would do on this earth. But also, uh, in a very important and significant way, they do look beyond that as well into the time that we live now, but also unto the time in which the Lord will return, when all of his people will be raised and perishable, and when we will come to the heavenly Mount Zion and worship our Lord face to face in the new heavens and new earth. And once again, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 65, Micah 4 mm-hmm. are helpful for explaining what God is doing in our lives now and what he is yet to do in a final and, and climactic way. So the, although many of the prophets do speak of uh, judgment and we do find prophets acting as uh, prosecuting attorneys, there's some wonderful material about that in the book. It's always against the backdrop of, of um, Christ bearing the wrath for his people and also yes. becoming their ultimate hope, which is uh, really what all of scripture is about pointing us to Jesus mm-hmm. Christ, our risen and exalted Lord. Nancy, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you once again. I'm, I'm so thankful that you've written this book, and I look forward to hearing from many, many people who are going to buy this book and use it in their churches. Thanks for taking the time today. Well, thank you guys so much for being interested in it yeah. and for all that you do to equip people in their ministry, including me. Thank you. Uh, we want to point people to the various websites. We'll have links in the show notes, but you can find out more information about Nancy online. You can visit her website, nancyguthrie.com. There you'll find information about her speaking engagements. There's also a form there for you to uh, fill out if you'd like to request her to speak at your uh, event uh, or at your church or ministry. Uh, you can also find out more information about Nancy's books at crossway.org. And there's a special website that you can visit, seeingjesusintheoldtestament.com. If you visit that site, you'll find a whole bunch of downloadable resources uh, related to this entire series. You can download uh, audio and video uh, video lessons. You can also find information about purchasing DVDs and uh, copies of the book uh, for use in your local churches. Of course, we're available at uh, reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs. You can subscribe. Uh, you can get these podcasts downloaded automatically to your computer. You can also get in touch with us uh, by sending us an email at mail at reformedforum.org or by tweeting us at reformedforum. We'd love to hear from you, and we're excited to get to meet many of you in October 2014 for our first uh, annual, we hope, our inaugural Reform Forum conference. So we want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>